Over the past weeks we've been looking at Matthew chapter 13. It's a chapter that consists of parables, seven parables about the kingdom of heaven. This morning we're going to be looking at the sixth of the seven parables and two weeks ago when we looked at the fifth one I asked Daniel to read the entire chapter. I just couldn't resist each one of us sitting through the whole chapter and listening to a big recap on all of the preceding parables that we considered and what I'm what I really want people to do is to follow the flow of these parables and not look at them in isolation, which is something I've done all too often. Very easy to do that, to parachute in on a verse or two of Scripture and and, and look at it in isolation of everything else. Or perhaps look at it uh, alongside verses elsewhere in the Bible, nothing wrong with that, but uh, and, and fail to look at it alongside verses in the very same chapter, dealing with the very same thing. Today we're going to consider um, another one of these parables about the kingdoms of heaven. Let me give you another recap. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter for you again, but I am going to give a recap. I think it is so important, so we, we head off in the right direction for today's parable. In the first parable, hearts were represented by different types of soil, the parable of the sower. And the seeds that were sown into the soil, the different types of soil, were were the word of the kingdom, or represented the word of the kingdom. Only one of the four hearts was receptive to the word of God, to the extent that it brought forth fruit after the word was sown into the heart. That parable demonstrated that God is sovereign over who receives the gospel of Christ unto salvation, because we can all hear the gospel. Hopefully you're all hearing this morning. You can at least hear what I'm speaking to you, what I'm talking to you about. But God is sovereign who about who receives the gospel of Christ unto salvation. And that is dependent, not largely, but entirely upon who he has chosen in eternity for salvation. It takes us to eternity. Before the foundation of the world, when God decreed who would, in the fullness of time, um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so it is that some hearts will receive the, the seed or the word of God, that seed, that word that lives and abides forever, and others won't. Various things will get in the way, the deceitfulness of riches or tribulations coming your way, and, and, and you just return to the world. And, and so it is that you were never saved in the first place. But nevertheless, By the grace of God alone, there are hearts that do receive the word of God. And they go on to produce fruit. It's very much uh, a parable that is, uh, in the first instance, the earthly story. It's about farming, sowing seeds into the ground and, and bringing forth fruit. 
But there is a spiritual application, a very important spiritual application. There are, by the grace of God, some hearts, most certainly not all hearts, that receive the word of God that is sown through the preaching of the gospel or through Bible tracts or or you sitting down and reading the scriptures for yourself. And again, it's all by the grace of God. Some of those hearts will go on to produce or bring forth um, much fruit, the fruit of salvation. That was the first parable. The second parable has the same theme as the first one, the sovereignty of God, that with the children of the kingdom spoken of as wheat and corresponding with those who have the fertile hearts in the first parable. And they, they live in a world uh, which is represented by a field and they live with the children of the evil one, which is represented by tares or poisonous weeds. So in the same world, referred to as a field, you've got wheat and you've got tares. The wheat are the children of God and the tares are the children of the devil, living side by side all over this world. The field owner is a picture of Jesus and he instructs his servants, who are the angels, to gather the wheat into his barn at the harvest and to burn the tares in a fire. You can guess what that is, perhaps. At the harvest, take, um, at the harvest, putting the seeds, uh, rather the wheat, into the barn, and the tares, those poisonous weeds, throwing them into the fire. That's a picture of the judgment, the day of judgment with some people being cast into hellfire, whilst the others shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their heavenly Father. The third and fourth parables also form a pair, just like the first two formed a pair. The third and the fourth parables, they form a pair, with the theme being the growth of the kingdom of heaven. In the third parable, the growth of the kingdom is seen in a tiny mustard seed that is sown into the ground. And what happened to that tiny mustard seed? It became a big tree, didn't it? With branches. And uh, you can read about the birds of the air roosting and nesting and taking shelter in the branches. And that is a picture of, the, the if, if we're talking about the first parable, those who have fertile hearts, or the second parable, it's the wheat, In other words, it's the children of the kingdom of heaven. People who have been chosen in eternity to be saved. They've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are taking shelter in him. And that is seen in those birds taking shelter in that uh, tree that was once a tiny mustard seed. And in that, that third parable, we see the growth and the expansion of the kingdom of heaven. And similarly, the fourth parable is about a woman who hid three measures of yeast in dough, which results in the growth or the expansion of the dough, which once again is a picture of the growth of the everlasting kingdom. The fifth parable 
is about a man finding treasure in a field. This is the last one that we looked at. The man finding treasure in a field. He hid the treasure, he sold all that he had, and he bought the field. Given that the second parable about the wheat and the tares, the man is the son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the field is the world, it's reasonable and consistent to assume that the man who finds the treasure is not one of us, but is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, the field is the world. Or otherwise, what, why change it? In one parable, we've been told very clearly that the field is the world. And so we, we, we considered that to be the case in um, the fifth parable. The, the, the field is the world. The man who does the finding is the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. As for the treasure, that is the church, which is God's treasure, shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of their heavenly Father, and which has already been described as people with the fertile hearts, or wheat, or children of the kingdom of heaven. With all that in mind, we can now look at the sixth parable in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the pearl of great price, which we shall consider along similar lines to the parable of the hidden treasure, the one that precedes it. We're not going to go off in a tangent. Having considered what we did with the parable of the hidden treasure, we will, we will carry on that course or, or that dire, in that direction. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's it. That's the parable. Just two verses there. Now, that kind of begs us to look elsewhere, doesn't it? We really would be reckless if we didn't consider all those other parables that I've just been reminding you of. First of all, it's worth knowing that where we have merchant or merchant man in verse 45 there in our English Bibles, the original Greek word denotes a man on a journey. It's a man on a journey. In line with the preceding parable, the man can be seen to be the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ who came on a journey to seek and to save that which was lost. And even now, he seeks and saves lost, helpless and hopeless sinners, people like us. And he does so through the word of the kingdom that is recorded in our Bibles and the word that is proclaimed throughout his field, that is the world. Commentators tend to understand this parable as being about people doing the seeking and they find Jesus who is the pearl of great price. And it has to be admitted that Jesus gave instructions to people to seek. Maybe we all know verses uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Seek and ye shall find, Jesus said. He said that in chapter 7 and verse 7. But who was he speaking to? 
when he said that. Seek and ye shall find. Jesus was speaking to his disciples at the time. To people who already were children of the kingdom of heaven. By prayer and supplication, disciples or Christians are to prayerfully seek as in seek to do God's will. And the Lord Jesus Christ gives an assurance that those who seek shall find. Now, I don't know, I'm sure I'm not being overly pious here, but it genuinely is my desire, at the very least, to seek to do God's will. And I trust it's your desire as well, if you're a Christian. I'm not saying you do God's will, but it's your prayer. And day by day, you make that your prayer. That you, that you will do the will of God. Not my will, but thy will be done. And you're seeking God in prayer to make that a reality with the Holy Spirit working in you to do the will of God. So really, that is something that Christians ought to be doing daily. Seeking. Seeking God in prayer. Seeking to do his will. And they have a God who will hear those prayers and who will delight in hearing such prayers. The prayers of his people seeking to do that which is pleasing to him and for his glory. However, people who are not disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are dead in trespasses and sins and they do not seek after the living God. You can be sure about that. Neither do they have any interest in seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. They are too busy seeking to fulfil the sinful desires of their flesh and their minds. It's not for nothing that in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul said, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. None that seeketh after God. So, as I've already said, the merchant man or the man on a journey can be seen to be the Lord Jesus Christ who found one pearl of great price and that begs the question, who or what is the pearl of great price? To state the obvious, a pearl is a gem, albeit the only gem that comes from a living creature. It's different, isn't it? Most gems, you you mine them in the ground. But a, a pearl is very different. It comes from a living organism, a living creature. A pearl is produced when a grain of sand or some other object gets inside a shell and causes injury to an oyster. The oyster responds by covering the irritant with layer upon layer of a substance until eventually a beautiful shining jewel is formed. In this parable, the Lord Jesus Christ used a pearl to describe his church which is the hidden treasure of the previous uh, parable, or the wheat, or the children of God, or citizens of heaven, the people with the fertile hearts in the first parable. 
The illustration that I'm about to give you is not one that you'll find in the Bible, but it might nevertheless help you to understand your position before God. If indeed Jesus has sought you and found you and you are trusting in him as your saviour from sin. Hopefully this parable will help you a bit. Uh, This illustration rather. The formation of a pearl from an annoying little irritant, a little bit of grain or sand or something like that, into something beautiful and precious depicts a hell-deserving sinner with the wrath of God abiding on him, being sought and found by the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and being covered with his beautiful robe of righteousness. That person is made a new creation in Christ, and he shall shine forth in the kingdom of his heavenly Father. As such, the pearl of great price is a picture of individual Christians and the church as a whole, the bride of Christ, no less, made beautiful with his righteousness, and they are very, very precious to him. We see in this parable that the man on a journey sells all that he has for that one pearl of great price, the church. That, again, should be a clue that it really isn't us. I know that you say, well, that ought to be your attitude of heart, that you forsake everything, but this is not what the parable's saying here. You sell everything to get what you want. We do not sell everything to become Christians and to uh, to get the kingdom of heaven. We do not do that. At this point in the explanation, to say anything other than I than what I have already said concerning the previous parable about the hidden treasure where the man Christ Jesus sells all that he has to buy the world would be most inconsistent and unwise. Therefore, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, though he was rich, yet for the sake of the church, he became poor. He sold all that he had in that he made himself of no reputation and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Having sold everything, Jesus bought or redeemed. All the wheat and the ransom price that he paid was his own precious blood. That really is a case of selling everything that you have and buying the world. Jesus making himself of no reputation. And then we see his exaltation, his glorification with all power being given unto him by his heavenly Father. Not only did he redeem the church, but he bought the whole world in the sense that he now, um, the world is now his footstool and he works everything out for the good of his church that he purchased. And that is very precious to him. As the Apostle Paul said to the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock 
over the which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers, he's speaking to these elders, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Speaking about God purchasing the church with his own blood. And we see that at the cross where Jesus shed his blood. And it was the precious blood of Christ, the, the incarnate Son of God, that was shed at that cross. Likewise, in chapter 1 of Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul said, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Again, it's, we see it's Jesus, the man on a journey, who is doing the buying here, having sold everything. Not us. Not us. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Peter said, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, that is your vain manner of life. Conversation means conduct or way of life. Received by tradition from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, that speaks of being purchased with the precious blood of the man who is God. In conclusion, pearls were once grains of sand or grit, and they were irritants or enemies of the oyster. However, they are made beautiful, they are made precious, when, when they are covered over with a substance that is emitted from the oyster. And that is a picture of the church, which is made up of people who were once children of the wrath of God. The beauty and the preciousness of the church and of individual Christians comes from without, from Jesus, whose sinless obedience to God in life and in death is reckoned to the account of all who are trusting in him. It's not your righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ that counts. A righteousness that is credited to your account, all you who are trusting in him. Having once been the enemies of God, you are saved and justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, his Son, you are adorned and made precious with garments of salvation and with a robe of righteousness, which is not your own worthless self-righteousness. A righteousness that is described as filthy rags in the Old Testament. Rather, it is the righteousness of Jesus, who is the Lord, your righteousness. Jehovah Sikenu. Though it cost the children of the kingdom of heaven absolutely nothing to be made precious and to be considered by God as his jewels, it cost Jesus his precious blood and his life at the cross where he paid the price for their sins. Finally, if you are not trusting in the man Christ Jesus who came down from heaven on a journey to seek and to save sinners, you are much more 
than an irritant to God. You are an enemy of God and you are fully deserving of judgment and eternal damnation. And you know what the biggest sin of all is here in this? A rejection of Christ. That is what results in the wrath of God abiding on you. Rejecting the, the overtures of God's love, that love that we see so clearly manifest at Calvary's cross. Where the Lord Jesus Christ was lifted up to die, bearing the sins of all he came to seek and to save. Therefore, repent, trust in Jesus as your saviour from sin and praise God with thanksgiving in your heart as you read verses such as Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 where it is written, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Amen.